0: Uh, several years ago, the comedian Louis C.K. was on the Conan show, Conan O'Brien show. And Conan O'Brien said to him, man, your, your routine is, is kind of dark. And Louis C.K. said, well, the only thing you have coming to you in this life after birth is death. The, the only thing you're owed is death. And then he said, but you know, the, the world is, is better than it could be. There's war and murder, but it was, there's not as much as there could be. There could be so much more. He said, when I see a crowd of people at Disneyland, I'm like, how are they not killing each other all the time? How are there not 50 murders every day at Disneyland, people with little knives running around stabbing each other just because you're so angry with the chaos and the crowds at Disneyland? And then he says, I saw a homeless guy at the bus stop, and he looked really wretched, and there was a woman next to him with a purse. And in my head, I was saying, murder her and take the money. You're homeless. Life is kicking you every day. Start murdering and eat well. Um, How very evolutionary, right? Uh, Really a a stark example of the survival of the fittest. Um, But you know, no matter what your worldview is, that there's something wrong with homeless people killing women and taking their purses just for the money. But what's wrong with it? What is wrong with it? A biblical worldview can actually answer that question of what is wrong with that. But a biblical worldview is also going to make you uncomfortable just in slightly different ways than Louis C.K. might. See, when we hear the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, we think, well, yeah, that's wrong. Everybody agrees that's wrong. And finally, I'm so excited that I can come to church one day and I've actually kept this one and I'm not going to have to to walk out of here feeling convicted today because I'm pretty sure I haven't murdered anybody. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, let's, let's read this and, and we'll find out. So uh, Exodus 20 and then Matthew 5 and Luke 10, this is God's word. You shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Then from Luke 10, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Pray with me. Uh, Father, help us as we look at your word. Help me to communicate this clearly. Uh, And open our hearts to see the truth of your word, uh, the true condition of our hearts, uh, and the true provision you have made for us in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So here's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the what of the sixth commandment, the why of the sixth commandment, the heart of the commandment, and then we're going to look at the flip side of the commandment. And I'll explain that when we get to it. But, But first of all, the what of the commandment. The Sixth Commandment is actually just two words in Hebrew, and Coleman probably knows how to pronounce this. I've forgotten all my Hebrew, but it's lo Ratsaka, or or something like that. We'll we'll pretend that's right. And the the ESV translates this as you shall not murder. Um, Older translations like the King James Version translate this as you shall not kill. Now, obviously, in our language, killing and murdering are two entirely different things. So how do we figure out what the best translation of this is? Well, we use scripture to interpret scripture. And if you look through the Old Testament, this word here is never used to refer uh, to killing in a just war. It's never referred to killing an animal. Um, There's a different Hebrew word that's used for capital punishment. There's a different Hebrew word that's used to describe self-defense. And so the Hebrew word here has a more narrow meaning than, our, than the English word kill. But it's also used in a broader sense than we use the word murder. Uh, for instance, this word is used for what we would call manslaughter and negligent homicide. So uh, think about manslaughter. Think about voluntary manslaughter. That would be the intent to kill somebody, but without premeditation. In other words, you just get in an argument and you fly out the handle and you kill somebody. Uh, Involuntary manslaughter would be if there was no intent to kill, but you were behaving in a way that is reckless and could possibly kill someone. You do kill someone, like you're drinking and driving or texting and driving or something like that, and you kill somebody. That would be involuntary manslaughter. Negligent homicide would be when you don't take adequate precautions uh, to prevent somebody from being killed. And there's kind of an interesting story in the Old Testament, and Deuteronomy 19 describes a situation where two guys go out into the forest to cut wood, and one of them is swinging the axe to chop down a tree, and the, the uh, axe flies off, the blade flies off, and it hits the other guy and kills him. And this word here in the Sixth Commandment is the word that's used to describe that because that was considered to be negligent homicide, that you should have taken care of your axe so that you wouldn't kill somebody. You're actually responsible for that. And so this, this Hebrew word is more narrow than our word kill, but it covers more situations than are typically covered by our word uh, murder. So, to kind of go through this, in the Old Testament, killing was allowed in the context of a just war. That was not considered to be murder. It was allowed in the context of self-defense. Exodus 22 describes a situation where somebody breaks into a house, and the, the law is basically... If it's nighttime and you can't really see what they're doing and you're in fear for your life, then you can kill them and not be held guilty for that. But if it's daytime and they break in and you can see that they have no intent to do you any harm and you kill them, then you are held responsible for that. That is wrong for you to do. And so uh, certain instances, self-defense was allowed in the Old Testament. Capital punishment was practiced in the Old Testament. Uh, and that was because of the value of human life. And because of the value of human life, and we'll, we'll look at a, at a text related to this in a second. because of the value of human life, it's still a fitting punishment today for someone who has taken human life. Uh, Romans 13, Paul says that the state actually bears the sword, and sword is an instrument of death. In Acts 25, he says, "If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape." debt. And so the Apostle Paul recognized that in certain situations, capital punishment was a legitimate form of punishment. Now, I got I have to caveat this. Um, that doesn't mean that there can't be reasons to oppose capital punishment in the United States, because if, if you read enough, and I just read Just Mercy, which is a fascinating book, you see that our country hasn't always used capital punishment in a, in a just manner, Um, In the state of Alabama, a black man who's convicted of killing a white person is much more likely to be put to death than a black man who's accused or convicted of killing another black person. There have been a lot of inequities with regard to race and poverty in how capital punishment has actually been administered in our country. And so there might be reasons that you would say, like, we actually need to oppose this right now because of the way it's been carried out. And that's fine. But that's not, you can't oppose it and say it's just wrong in general, right? There are certain situations in which this is actually a just punishment from Scripture. So, the Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit capital punishment. It doesn't prohibit killing during a war. It doesn't prohibit killing in self-defense. It does prohibit murder, manslaughter, negligent homicide, things like euthanasia, uh, suicide. And abortion, and let me let me talk about a couple of these for a minute. Let me talk about suicide first. Um, all of us have been touched by this in, in one way or the other. It's it's horrible. Uh, it, it seems to be on the increase in our society, and it's wrong. Uh, and and let me say it's wrong because it's taking the life of someone who's made in the image of God, taking your own life, and you are made in the image of God, and, and you you're not supposed to do that. Um, but I'm talking ethically right now, okay? I'm not talking about pastorally how you would deal with somebody in this situation. But Juliet Gossett said this She's a wife and a mother who's had five family members commit suicide. And she said this Suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving or disrespectful, it is the truth. I dearly loved my family members who committed suicide, but their choices were sinful and not righteous. And she says in saying this that her hope is that somebody will, will hear this, it'll get kind of stuck in their head, and then down the road maybe if they are contemplating suicide, if nothing else dissuades them, then maybe the fact that they think this is, this is actually wrong, this is against God's law, maybe that will actually dissuade them from doing this. So suicide is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin, as people sometimes think. It's certainly not the unforgivable sin. John Frame uh, tells a story of a missionary friend who lived in Africa, uh, and he came back, and he didn't really elaborate on what happened when he got back, but this man sank into a, a period of deep depression and discouragement, and he tried to kill himself multiple times, and he finally succeeded, but during one of his stays in the hospital, somebody asked him whether he was trusting in God's grace to him in Christ Jesus, and he said more than ever before. Like he was desperately leading on Jesus Christ for his salvation, but he was also racked with depression that eventually led to him taking his life. Um, Christians do get depressed. Christians do struggle, sometimes depressed to the point of, of taking their own life. And, and let me say on a more pastoral note if you're wrestling with this or if you're trying to counsel somebody, you've got a friend who's wrestling with this. I don't think you'd necessarily lead with the sixth commandment and say, like, hey, this is what you want to lead with is mercy. Uh, what you want to lead with is a listening ear. Uh, what you probably really want to do is get help and, and get somebody who has dealt with us to enter into this situation with you. Uh, what you want to do is point them to the mercies of God and Jesus Christ and remind them that their life really does Matter, and, and there really is a purpose for you to be here, even though your life feels desperate and pointless. There's a reason for you to be here. And there are people who love and who care about you. I think it's to, to, good to, to have in mind, kind of if you ever go through a, a period of depression like this, the, uh, the, um, there's a man named William Cooper. And William Cooper tried to kill himself multiple times. He even wound up in an insane asylum. And he was befriended there by John Newton, who was the converted slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And William Cooper came to know Jesus, and he loved poetry. And John Newton thought, man, this would really be good for this guy's soul if I got him writing more poetry. And so they sat down and wrote a hymnal for their church. Uh, And some of the hymns that William Cooper wrote, you may know, God moves in a mysterious way, and there is a fountain filled with blood. And those, those are hymns that we still sing as God's people. And so here's this guy whose life was dark, whose life was bleak, who he, he struggled with thoughts of suicide, and yet his life was greatly used by God. And so we need to remember that, that in the midst of our darkness, there is, there's hope for us. There's hope for us. Um, let me talk about a, a abortion in a minute. Uh, This is uh, uh, hard to talk about for numerous reasons. One, because it's such a a hot-button political issue, but it is sin. Uh, It is the unlawful taking of a human life. Exodus 21 depicts a situation where two men are fighting, and one of them strikes uh, a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely. And the text says, if neither the mother or the child are really harmed, then the person who struck them can be fined, but that's kind of the extent of it. But if the mother or the child actually die as a result of this blow, the text says, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That the one who struck them had to actually pay with their own life. Uh, Psalm one thirty nine thirteen. for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Hosea twelve three says, In the womb, he took his brother by the hill. Twins in the womb, he took his brother. And so the, the scripture re- repeatedly views unborn children as persons. And it is unlawful to take the life of a person made in the image of God. Uh, a couple of quotes related to this, this is from John Frame. From the point of conception, unborn children have a full complement of chromosomes, half from the father and half from the mother. Therefore, the unborn child is not, quote, part of his mother's body. His genetic makeup is different from hers. So we should not treat the unborn child as we should hair or fingernails, or even as we treat organs like the gallbladder or liver. The unborn child is a separate and unique human being. Uh, John Calvin, for the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light, And he, he's saying, like, if you think it's more horrible to, to kill a guy in his home than out in the field because this is the place where he's supposed to be safe, how much more should an unborn child feel safe in a mother's womb? And how much more atrocious is it to take the life of that child in the womb? And so uh, abortion is, is, is killing, it's a murder, it's the unlawful taking of a, of a human life. So that's the what of the commandment. Why? Why this commandment? What's the why of the commandment? Why does God make such a big deal about us murdering or taking the life of another human being? Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, why? For God made man in his own image. Murder is a horrendous crime which calls for our capital punishment, Because man is actually made in the image of God. Men and women are made in God's likeness. We are are little statues of God. And so the person who cuts you off in traffic, the person who breaks in front of you in the line at Aldi, the person who steals your purse, the person who votes for the other party, and you can't understand why, each of these people are actually made in the image and likeness of God and therefore have dignity. And we should treat them well. And we should honor them as those who are made in the image of God. And we should, we should love them. Uh, human beings are uniquely made in the image of God in, in all of God's creation. Our, God, our lives are uniquely valuable because we are made in God's image. And so because of this, there are only these limited number of situations in which killing the taking of life is actually allowed. Now... Contrast this with what one medical professor said, and I'm going to summarize part of this. He said, all this image of God stuff, all this image is just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, and we need to get rid of that. And he said, if we could get rid of that, we will not regard as sacred the life of each and every member of our species. All right, And so he said, like, if we would quit regarding people as made in God's image, then we don't have to regard every single person as sacred anymore. And And what that means is, If you're taking up resources, if you're becoming a burden on society, a burden to our species, then sorry, but we may need to put you down for the good of the rest of us. There's a a show on Netflix right now, the the Coen Brothers, it's called um, The Battle of Buster Scruggs. Coen Brothers fans, you need need to watch this. It's a series of uh, kind of Western short stories. And and I hadn't watched it in a while, but I think I'm going to get the story right. There's there's one particular one where there's a guy who has no arms and no legs. And someone kind of takes him in. And this guy, like, learns to basically give performances where he recites dramatic poetry. And it's kind of like this whole stage scene. And so they travel around the West. And this guy, they roll him up on the stage. And he does his dramatic readings, his dramatic performance. Everybody claps. They pass the hat around, they get some money, they go on to the next town. And this goes great for a while, but eventually, you know, the act grows old. It's not as, you know, people aren't enjoying it as much. they are not getting as much money in the hat. And so the, the guy who's, the guy who can walk around, whatever, the manager, um, he, he decides, or he figures out another way to make money. And so the guy with no arms and no legs isn't as much use to him anymore. And he's actually taking up resources because he's got to carry him everywhere and take him to the bathroom and just, you know, feed him and, and everything. And so one night, the manager gets up in the middle of the night and he walks to the back of the rat wagon and he just grabs the guy and he walks over to a ravine and he just throws him down. He just, he just throws him down. You're, you're taking up space. You're taking up resources. Y'all, that's what we're doing with abortion. That's what we're beginning to do with euthanasia. And if there is no God, and if we are not made in his image, there really is no reason not to do that with the disabled, not to do that with the elderly, not to do that with the unemployed, not to do that with the chronically ill, not to do that with the teenager who's driving has caused your insurance premiums to go up again. Like, sorry, we just don't have enough money. So over the ravine you go. Now, whatever your opinion may be on abortion, I'm pretty sure you think those other things are wrong. And I want to ask why. Why do we think they're wrong? If we are fundamentally just more evolved animals, then what's the difference in us killing another human being and animals killing other animals? It is just survival of the fittest, right? I'm going to kill the lady and take the purse... I'm more fit than she is, and so I'm going to be all right and see you later. But we know something's wrong with that. You know something is wrong with that no matter what your worldview is this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know something is wrong with that. And that's because we and the people around us are made in the image and likeness of God. And we get that at some level. So that's the, the what of the commandment and the why of the commandment. What's the heart of the commandment? I I can't get into a detailed explanation of this because of time constraints this morning. But in the passage in Matthew, Jesus is dealing with people who felt, as long as I haven't physically killed somebody, then I have kept this commandment. And, you know, maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you've been listening to what I've said so far and you're like, okay, yeah, I agree with that, and I agree with that, and I agree with that that, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done that. And Jesus says, if you're thinking about it that way, then you're actually missing the heart of the the Sixth Commandment. Because the action of killing someone doesn't just randomly happen for no reason. It begins in our hearts. It comes out of our hearts. Our heart is the problem. And it's not just the act of murder that deserves judgment. It's the anger. It's the sinful anger of our hearts that deserves judgment as well. And so when anger lurks in our hearts the seed of murder is there. Now certainly in the Bible there's such a thing as, as righteous anger. We, we are righteously angry when God is dishonored. There, we ought to be mad at sin and righteously angry. But sinful anger is that anger John Stott calls the anger of pride, vanity, hatred, malice, revenge. This is the anger we feel when we don't get our own way. When, when our desires are, are hindered. Uh, James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. And so Jesus is saying that sinful anger is actually murder committed in your heart. And unless you repent, your destination is hell. Like that's that's the just consequences of that. And so he's saying, it's not just your murderous actions that are the problem. It's your murderous hearts that are the problem. And we all have murderous hearts. Um, I've used this illustration before. But the movie No Country for Old Men, uh, you know, the the guy that Lou Ellen Moss is the cowboy who stumbles on to a a drug transaction gone bad and there are dead bodies everywhere. And he finds two and a half million dollars and decides to take it for himself. Uh, the people who, who that, it's their money figure out who he is and so they come after him and they send Anton Segura is, is the guy who plays the character who, who is going after this cowboy and he's just on this murderous rampage uh, and Tommy Lee Jones is chasing the murderer uh, chasing the killer and he's chasing Llewellyn Moss and it's just this bloodbath the whole movie um, and you know, you, you get to the point where you're watching it and, and you're thinking, you know, it's a messed up world out there. There's some messed up people out there, and I'm glad I'm not like that. And I, I'm glad things are not like that in, in my house. Um, but then later in the movie, Segura, the, the murderous killer, has a car wreck and he breaks his arm. And there's these two little boys riding bicycles, and they, and they come up to him, and he offers to buy one of their shirts so he can make a sling for his arm. And so the little boy gives him his shirt, and you're like, he's gonna kill him, is what you're thinking the whole time. And he makes a sling for his shirt, and then he walk, a sling for his arm, and then he walks off. And as soon as he walks off, the two little boys start fighting each other over the money that he gave them. And it's like um, Cormac McCarthy, the author, is saying. You know the same DNA that's in the killer is also lurking in your heart as well. You're really not that different. Um, Sufyan Stevens, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. You can ask Matt, he's a fan. But, but in his song, John Wayne Gacy Jr., he sings about all the murders that John Wayne Gacy committed. And then in the last stanza he says, And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And so murder is not just about the act of killing. It's about our hearts as well. So let's talk about this then, the flip side of this commandment. Uh, When I was a kid, we had these things called records that you listen to music on. Um, And there there were 45s, which were singles, which had one song. And they always had the A side, which was the popular song. And then there was the B side, which was a song on the back, which nobody had ever heard of. The Ten Commandments are kind of like that. There's the A side and the B side. There's the A side, do not murder. And then there's the B side to that, which we don't really think about. The A side is God saying, you're not to take human life. The B side is that when he tells you not to take human life, he's not just telling you not to take human life. He's telling you, you ought to do what you can to preserve human life. All right, that was actually in our catechism question today. Look, flip back to that in your um, bulletin. The very last question there. Is it enough that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us, To love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. And I think that's powerfully illustrated in the parable we read this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is familiar to all of us. In the parable of the Good Samaritan is where this dude is robbed, and it's a Jewish man who's robbed and beaten up and left on the side of the road. And two preachers come along, a couple of rabbis come along, and they see him, but they keep going. They make a conscious decision to not stop and help the person who's been beating up, been beaten up. And then a Samaritan comes along who would have been hated by the Jews. There's all this racial tension, and he stops, and he does what the preachers don't do. All right? So imagine Jesus telling this story, To a white audience in 1950s Alabama or Mississippi or or, or South Carolina. And he says, You know, there's this white guy that's been beaten up and he's laying on the side of the road, and two other white guys come by and they just ignore him and leave him laying there. And then a black guy comes down the road and he stops and he helps him, even though he knows that in stopping, he's liable to get blamed for, for hurting the guy in the first place. And Jesus says, It's the guy that stopped. That did the right thing. And it's the preachers who, in essence, have violated the sixth commandment. They've said, This guy's life doesn't matter. I got other stuff to do. Y'all, sometimes we break the sixth commandment by doing nothing at all. Uh, Martin Luther said this this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but when he fails to do good to his neighbor or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see him suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. Uh, another Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail, said this I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the White Citizens Council or the KKK, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice. Who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Do do you see what he's saying? He's like, our biggest problem is not the people that actively oppose us. I'm starting to think our biggest problem is the people who agree with us, but sit on the sidelines and won't do anything about what's going on. Our own denomination a couple years ago, we were going through a process of confessing the sins of, of our Presbyterian forefathers with regards to racial issues. And I saw a man stand up on the floor of General Assembly. He said, you know, it's not like we were blatantly racist during the Civil Rights Movement. Our problem was we just ignored the whole thing and stood on the sidelines and didn't offer to help. Sometimes we break the Sixth Commandment when we don't do anything at all. And so a question for you this morning is: are you concerned about the poor? Are you concerned about immigrants and refugees? Are you concerned about the homeless? Are you concerned about battered women? Are you willing to be a voice for minorities? Is supporting foster care or adoption or crisis pregnancy centers? Is that on your radar? And no, one person can't do all of this, but we can do something. And I think my tendency, at least, is to say, that's terrible. Maybe I'll write a check. What time does the game come on? And then just keep going along my way. So maybe Louis C.K. is right about the darkness of the world that we live in. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of the law? The weight of the sixth commandment when we, we really think about what it's driving at? It? It, it crushes us, doesn't it? It's a weight that crushes us. Is there any way for that weight to be removed? Is there any way, is there any hope for a murderer? Is there any hope for someone who is killed unjustly? Is there any hope for a woman who has had an abortion? Or for the boyfriend or husband who pressured her into getting That abortion? Is there any hope for the angry and bitter and self righteous person? Is there any hope for the person who is turned away from those in need? There's a song by Nick Cave that Johnny Cash covered late in his life. It's called uh, The Mercy Seat, and it starts this way It all began when they took me from my home and put me on death row, a crime for which I'm totally innocent. You know, and he describes the mercy seat, and at times it feels like the mercy seat is the electric terror, and at times it feels like the mercy seat may be the the throne of God himself. And he keeps going, he says, the mercy seat is waiting, and I think my head is burning. And in a way I'm yearning to be done with all this weighing of the truth, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In any way I told the truth and I'm not afraid to die. I hear stories from the chamber. Christ was born into a manger, and like some ragged stranger, he died upon the cross. Might I say it seems so fitting in its way, he was a carpenter by trade, or at least that's what I'm told. In heaven, his throne is made of gold. The ark of his testament is stowed, a throne from which I'm told all history does unfold. It's made of wood and wire, and my body is on fire, and God is never far away. Into the mercy seat I climb, my head is shaved, my head is wired, and like a moth that tries to enter the bright eye, I go shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while. In any way I never lied. And the mercy seat is waiting, and I think my head is burning, and in a way I'm yearning to be done with all this weighing of the truth, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and anyway I told the truth, and I'm not afraid to die. And the mercy seat is burning. And I think my head is glowing. And in a way, I'm hoping to be done with all this twisting of the truth an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And anyway, there was no proof. And I'm not afraid to die. And the mercy seat is glowing. And I think my head is smoking. And in a way, I'm hoping to be done with all these looks of disbelief a life for a life and a truth for a truth. And I've got nothing left to lose. And I'm not afraid to die. And the mercy seat is smoking. And I think my head is melting. And in a way that's helping to be done with all this twisting of the truth. An eye for an eye and a truth for a truth. In any way I told the truth. But I'm afraid I told a lie. He's seeing that. And this is repeated over and over. That by the very end though. he's The whole time he's been saying. "You know, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And in the end he has to say. I, I did lie. And I am. Guilty. And I do deserve what is happening here. Uh, Nick Cave later in his life wrote about the song that he had written. He said, uh, basically, when I was younger, I was able to write things like I'm not afraid to die. And kids come up to me and say, hey, that line means so much to me. And I have to sort of say, I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel as cocky about death as I used to. I wake up in mad panics about death approaching. And so, What's our, what's our hope? If we, like him, have, have told a lie that we have done what is wrong, we have broken the sixth commandment, our hope is in this Christ he sings about. He was born into a manger and, like some ragged stranger, died upon the cross. Our hope is in the fact that the Son of God has allowed himself to be murdered so that murderers can be forgiven. Our hope is that there is an unjust execution at the heart of all history that actually has something to do with setting me free. Our hope is in a Jesus who hangs on the cross and looks at each one of us and says, yes, you should be here, but I'm here instead so that you will never have to endure the the just punishment for your crimes. Our hope is in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. See, your, your hope this morning is not in, the, in, in thinking somehow you can do enough Habitat for Humanity projects over the next 30 years of your life to somehow make up for the wrong things you've done. Your hope isn't in redefining what you did and saying, well, it wasn't really murder and it wasn't really that bad. Your hope and my hope is in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can remove the condemnation that we feel when we come under the weight of this commandment. But hear this. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've murdered, when you give it to Jesus, when you take it to his cross, your condemnation is absolutely removed, is not there anymore. And you can go to that cross and you can leave your guilt and you can leave your shame and you can leave it at the cross and you don't have to take it with you. You can leave it there and hand it over to Jesus and you don't have to beat yourself up about it anymore. And God is not going to hold it over your head because He has already held it over Jesus' head and Jesus has dealt with it for you. And so you can walk away with joy and forgiveness knowing that your crime has been atoned for and you don't have to bear the weight of it anymore. And then when the day of your death Draws near. You won't have to fear death like Nick Cave did. Instead, you can face it like a woman I read about this week in Georgia who was on death row for a murder, a real murder. Uh, And she was converted while she was in prison, dramatically converted. She showed all evidence of being converted. But they didn't, they still executed her. And when she went as lethal injection, as she was being put to death. She was singing Amazing Grace. She was singing Amazing Grace as she was being put to death because she knew that the real death blow had already fallen on Jesus Christ. And so even though she was about to die, she knew she was going to live again because her sin had been atoned for. Y'all, the gospel is big enough for people on death row. And that's good news because that means the gospel is big enough for me and for you as well. Let me pray. Father, would you um, would you help us to see our hearts? Some of us we don't really want to look there. Uh, I pray that you'd help us to see that. But I pray that you wouldn't leave us there. That you wouldn't leave us in despair. That after convicting us, kind Holy Spirit, would you lift our eyes? And would you cause us to see Jesus in our place in the electric chair? Would you cause us to see Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve upon ourselves because of your love for sinners and your desire to rescue us? Would you free us? Father, some of us, all this does is is bring back condemnation that we thought we had been rid of, and and I don't want to do that. Father, would you free us from that? As we come to the table in a minute, would you help us to, to lay down our burden of sin again? And walk away in joy, knowing that our sins have been forgiven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.